If you have your Bibles, turn over to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 is where we're going to be today. And as we enter this time of Advent, celebrating the, the, the physical human birth of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, I, I thought it important for us to, to really focus on the enormity of the miracle that is called the Incarnation. The reality is, is that for many of us, uh, if you are a United, in the United States at all, or even in the Western world, Christmas has been a celebration that you have engaged in from the time that you are very small. The, the reality of Jesus coming to earth, something that, that is so historically huge and miraculous is something that we have heard stories about from the time that we were very young. And in fact, most of us in this room probably started celebrating Christmas before we could even speak. And yet when that happens, when we begin to celebrate something, when it becomes something that is so normal for us, I think that sometimes the, the supernatural miraculousness of that moment becomes almost old hat for us. The reality that the very God of the universe, the, the creator of all things, the, the one who has all power, who could destroy everything with a, a wave of his hand or a thought in his mind, became confined to the physical body of an infant child. The reality that this child had to depend on an earthly woman for sustenance, for, for care, for having his diaper changed. The God of the universe had his diaper changed by a human woman. The reality of that gets lost on us when we just focus on God being God and Jesus being Jesus. But when we begin to have a true understanding of the reality of the Trinity and who Jesus actually is, was, and will be forever, that reality should bring us to a new form of worship here in this time of, se in this time of year. And the truth is, is that Jesus was much more than a baby, and Christmas is much more than about presents. In fact, Christmas is deep theology. Christmas is deep theology. You know, a lot of times we, we hear people say, well, I want to hear something deeper than just the story of Jesus, deeper than the gospel. We want to hear something deeper than salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But the reality is that none of that would be possible unless the, the, the God of the universe, who was 100% divine, became 100% man in this baby. Now imagine the humility of that God. Imagine person who is willing to take everything that they have possessed because they are God eternal, filled with power, filled with might, filled with every aspect of the deity, and yet was willing to be confined to that infant child. Did he give up his deity in that moment? No. That baby child was still God, he chose to allow himself to be limited in his knowledge, to be, to be limited in his experience to that of an infant child. But in reality, the entirety of the Godhead was able to be confined to that body of an infant child. 
Can you imagine what it would take and what it would be? In fact, the first act of Jesus' willingness to suffer was his willingness to be confined to that human form. The reality is that that, that that baby had to have his diaper changed. That baby had to be burped. That baby at some point got sick. That baby probably threw up on his mother. All of these things that we don't usually talk about, think about, the humanity of Jesus, all of those things led to his ability to be able to face every temptation that we have faced and it be real temptation because of his humanity and his human And because he was able to face that temptation, because he was able to be tempted in every way, the scripture says, as we have been tempted and remain sinless, that uniquely qualified Jesus to be our savior. No other human being in the history of the planet could be our savior because when they faced temptation, at least at times they gave in to that temptation. But Jesus, in his human form, dealing with all whatever that human frailty that we all possess in our physical bodies, face the temptations as we face and still remained sinless. You see, Christmas is deep theology. The physical aspects of who Jesus was and is today is something that we need to understand that the reality of who he is did not change, but his experience as a human being, made him be able to identify with us in our human limitations. We feel pain, so did Jesus. We feel temptation, so did Jesus. All of these things, Satan went out of his way to tempt him, to throw things in front of him that would cause him to... to, in Satan's hope, to cause him to stumble into sin. And every one of those ways, Satan worked and worked and worked to try to get Jesus to fall into temptation, and yet he did not sin. Christmas is deep theology. The very God of the universe humbled himself to the form of a man. What an amazing, amazing gift. In the book of Philippians, Paul understands the importance of this reality. He, Paul is very acquainted with the limitations of being human on this planet. Um, Paul is the one who prayed, Lord, deliver me from this body of death because he was constantly facing temptation. And unlike Jesus, Paul at times succumbed to temptation. He struggled with sin, just like you and I struggle. And Paul was going through a gigantic struggle right now. In fact, what we know about the book of Philippians is that he was in jail right now. He was writing this book from jail, and the reality was is that he didn't know if he was ever getting out. He was, he was speaking truth. He was out there sharing the gospel, and he was using his Roman citizenship while in jail to be able to take the gospel message and share it with the world that was lost and dying. And he, in this process... If you are in jail, if you've ever been in jail, it's not the happiest of places, guys. 
And Roman jails were a lot worse than the jails that we have around today. Roman jails were usually dark and dank. People usually got sick, and some of them died while in prison. And so the reality of what he was going through was not a fun circumstance for Paul. Paul was not enjoying this process. And so if you, when we read in Philippians chapter 2, the context tells us in Philippians chapter 1 that Paul is choosing to view his suffering, his, his jail time, as a tool for God to use to spread the gospel. He is, he is choosing his suffering as a vehicle for the spread of the gospel. And then he begins to, to bring out the reality that In order to do that, in order to look at the circumstances of his life as a vehicle of the gospel, he has to learn humility. Because our natural human way of thinking believes that we deserve better than we have. A lot of times when negative circumstances come into our life, one of the first questions, one of the first things that comes into our mind, we think, why am I experiencing this. Why me, God? Why not this other person? I I am somebody who is trying to live for you. I'm living rightly. I'm doing the right thing, quote unquote. Why is my family sick? Why am I suffering? Why are these things going on in my life? And there's a certain amount of of arrogance that comes into us when we, we begin thinking that suffering is for other people and not for us. But when we begin to think, wait a minute, the God of the universe in perfect human form suffered. He suffered. What makes us think that we are so much better than Jesus that somehow we don't deserve suffering? Now, don't get me wrong. I, you know, this is the Christmas season. I don't want this to be a downer. Don't be, don't be depressed by this. What I'm hoping is that you will experience some kind of, of reality that whatever you're going through, whatever suffering you're going through, God is not going to waste it. He doesn't waste suffering. He does not waste experiences in our life. He, the reality of what we know is that God is capable of taking that which the enemy means for evil and doing something good through it and amidst it. And he is in the business of doing that for all of eternity. In fact, the entire Bible is one story after another of people being dumb, doing sinful things, and God using them anyway. Isn't that hopeful? That he could use some of the most sinful people in the world that's recorded in these verses. He can do people that are capable of doing terrible things. And God uses, in, the, in spite of their terribleness, he uses them to do something to spread the word of the gospel. And if he can do that with them, don't you think he could do that with us? Paul believed that. Paul knew how much of a sinner he was. Paul knew he was in jail. He knew he was suffering. And yet, he was willing to humble himself into the reality that maybe, just maybe, God is more concerned about his plan than my comfort. What if my suffering is something that God can use to accomplish his purposes in my life, but also in the lives of others around us? And what if we are called to find comfort, not necessarily in the relief from suffering, but in the reality that God can use whatever circumstances are in our life to glorify himself and to bring his purposes to bear?
Paul realizes that in order for we as human beings to recognize that and to be able to change our perspective, we need to have a model of what that looks like. And so that is what he brings up in Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians 2, we, we learn that Christ sets an example of humility. In fact, the very human birth of Jesus is that first step in humility that Jesus allowed in his life for him to become our Savior. Read with me in Philippians chapter 2. We're going to read one through, verse 1 through 18 and stop and comment along the way. Verse 1. So if there is an any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let's stop there for one second. If there's any encouragement, listen, he's, he's actually asking the people of Philippi to stop and think. He's writing them as, as this concerned pastor, as this concerned father, saying to them, listen, I am going through this, and my hope for you, even though I'm in jail, even though I'm speaking through this letter to you, my hope for you is that you will be able to, to, be, to take your circumstances and see something positive in it. So he says, let me remind you of some of the benefits, some of the, the good things that are happening in your life right now. If there is any encouragement in Christ, stop right there. If we remember what Christ has done for us, even in the midst of negative circumstance, isn't that an encouragement? If we can remember what Ephesians chapter 1 says about us, the truth of who Jesus says we are in him. If there is any encouragement in Christ, people, that should be the primary method. The primary source of our encouragement should be from Jesus Christ. And what he says is true about us. So the idea of him asking this question is not really a, 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 if saying, is there any? No, it's the reality of that there is. Remember it. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, is, if, is there any comfort from love? Does it make you feel comforted to know that there is one who loves you unconditionally no matter what? That the God of the universe chooses to love us, not because we are worthy of it, but because he is love, and it's who he is, and he chooses to love us. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort and love, any participation in the Spirit, listen, if you are a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit is inside of you, and he is a source of comfort and power and all of these things inside of you. And then when Satan tries to tell you that when you're suffering, you're alone, he's lying because no matter what, God says, I am with you always, even to the ends of the earth, and the Spirit does not leave his kids. If there's any affection and sympathy. And what he is saying in this is, listen, if you're in Christ, you should be encouraged. If you need comfort, God is there offering it. He gives it to you because you should feel comforted knowing that he unconditionally loves you no matter what. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are participating in the Holy Spirit. All of these things bring out affection and sympathy. So he's basically reminded them of what they have. 
And he says the result of that, the result of those things be true, being true, if we can remember those things, then the result of that will be this. Paul says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Unity in Christ does not come, again, we've talked about this over the last several weeks, but unity does not come from uniformity of thinking, uniformity of experience, uniformity of the way we look, the uniformity of income, all of those types of things. Unity doesn't come from that. Unity comes when people from different backgrounds and different experiences remember the gift that we've all been given. Unity doesn't come from us having the same opinion. Unity comes when I remember that I'm a sinner saved by grace and you are a sinner saved by grace and we have Jesus in common. That is what unity comes from. And he is saying, listen, in order for us to experience the unity of the faith, we have to humble ourselves, remember the gifts that we have been given, remember what we have been saved from and be willing then to support one another in this process. And then he says this, he is, he's, he, he is telling us to die to ourselves. In verse 3, he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Count others more significant than yourselves. Now, this is not supposed to be some form of martyrdom where we where we like serve others and we then feel bad for ourselves for doing it what this is saying is listen listen your motivation my motivation cannot be about my me it cannot be about my selfish motivation it cannot be about my opinion it cannot be completely about me and myself and the reality is is that the culture around us is constantly saturating us with the idea that our opinion our feelings our experience are the most important thing in our life and when somebody disagrees with us or, or, or tells us something different or offends us, that that is the most important thing in our life. And we begin to allow relationships to break down. Even our relationship with God can break down when we don't get what we want because we have this elevated sense of self and we desire to be in control of the things around us and the people around us and the circumstances in our lives. And when those things get out of control, what do we seek to do? We seek to go out and control things and think to do things that are according to our will and our opinion and relationships and unity breaks down. The only way to combat that is to remember what we have been blessed with. Just on Friday night, our, our, uh, our a group of us from the church went to the Circuit 21 and we saw White Christmas, the musical. It was, it was really good. It was really, if, you, if you went and you enjoyed it, who, who went and just raise your hand. Yeah, good times were had by all. Food was great. But one of the songs in that musical um, really struck, struck home to me. Not a Christian musical at all. Okay, so don't even, don't think about that. But one of the things that they talked about was how um, this young girl was having a hard time sleeping. And the song says that if you have a hard time sleeping, Try counting your blessings. 
If you, if you take a moment and count the blessings that you have instead of the negative circumstances in your life, remembering what God has done for you, remembering the, the, the gifts that God has given you, starting, and it's, this is not in any way the least, starting with your salvation, that, that you have eternal security because of what Jesus did on the cross, that, that should bring hope to us. It should bring rest to us. It should calm our spirits to know that the God of the universe who gave us all these amazing gifts through the power of the Holy Spirit is there to walk with us in the midst of it. And he allows us to then be able to choose to die to self, to serve him, and to serve others. Count your blessings. Verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Now, there's something in that verse 3 that, that really struck me. It says, do nothing in selfish conceit. I think I'm doing pretty good when I do most things selflessly. You know, I begin to think, well, I'm doing pretty good, you know. Um, most of my life is about serving others, about serving God. But there's a couple of things where I get upset when I don't get my way or, or I get upset when I have to do something that's out of my ordinary path or I have to do a chore that maybe my, that somebody else forgot to do or whatever it is. I, I, I begin thinking, I'm doing pretty good. But the reality is, is that if you're a follower of Jesus, he literally says, do nothing out of selfishness. Do nothing out of selfish conceit. Do nothing because the reality is is that the fruits of all division come when we begin doing some things out of selfishness. When we begin to have our, when self becomes more important in some experiences of our life. And the world is constantly trying to tempt you to be self-centered, to be self-focused, to be completely focused on self. Verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. In other words, don't make decisions on just what is best for you and your family. Make decisions on what is best for the people around you. What is best for your nation? What is best for the world? What is best for the church? What is best for the kingdom? Don't, don't just focus on your own self-interests. And then he gets into how. Because I don't know about you, when I read those first five verses, I'm thinking, there's no way. How in the world can I, I'm a naturally selfish person. I like me. And I like making me happy. And if I know that I'm not the only one in this room that likes to make myself happy. Right? So if that's the truth, how then are, can we, as, as human beings who struggle with the flesh, who struggle with sin every single day, how can we choose to do the things that he mentions in those first five verses? How can we have nothing be selfish? And then he pulls out the Jesus card. Verse five. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, in Christ Jesus. He, he basically rips apart the excuse and says, if you're a follower of Jesus and you have the Holy Spirit and you have received all these amazing gifts, all these things that I just reminded you of, one more thing that you have is this mind. 
which was also in Christ Jesus. This is yours. In other words, it's not something you earn. It's not something, it's something that you do possess. It is yours. It was a gift. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, which is yours. Verse six, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now that verse has kind of boggled my mind for years. He was equal with God, 100% God, right? But he didn't see that the power of God, the, the, the experience of being God like that, he was in the form God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And so I did some research on what that phrase actually means because, you know, it, it, just on the surface, it, it doesn't make a ton of sense in our, in, from our human perspective. We kind of think, well, it's not, you know, Jesus didn't think it was worthy just to hold on to that Godhead, right? That's what it kind of seems like on paper. But if you begin to look at the translations and also begin to look at different ways that different translations have, have actually translated that phrase, what the implication here is that Jesus did not hold on to his Godhead for his own Benefit. In other words, he was willing to humble himself to human form and not just keep his position for his own benefit. He didn't look at his, his divinity as something that was for his benefit only. In other words, he, he possessed all of this divine power eternally he he had this position i mean think about the reality that he was in heaven and everywhere he went he was worshiped and adored and people loved him and when he spoke worlds were created scripture tells us that in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god and nothing that was made was ever made except through him genesis 1 tells us that the word was with god in the beginning and that the word of God was present over the face of the waters and God created the heavens and the earth. Jesus had all of that power. And yet when it came time for him to prioritize his power and authority and position or saving you and me, he chose to humble himself even to the form of humanity. Verse 6 again, he says, he, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He did not count equality with God something that was purely for his benefit, for his selfish motivations. He wasn't selfish. So he chose to view his position as something that would benefit others. Verse 7, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul, in writing this, he, he takes us and he directly connects the, the physical birth of Jesus to the cross. That the first step to the cross was Jesus being born an infant form. And it was a choice that Jesus had to make. It was a choice that he had because he had this position. He had all knowledge. He was right. He was correct. People listened to him and he chose to humble himself for the benefit of others. 
And that obedience, that, that humility, his willingness to humble himself led him to be born. It led him to live. And it led him to die all for the purpose of glorifying the Father and saving us. Jesus truly died to himself for our benefit. Truly died himself for our benefit. Verse seven, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of Ben, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, why is Paul talking about the humility of Jesus? Remember, in the context, we are, we are, we are learning that Paul is, is, is suffering. He has been thrown in jail for naming the name of Christ. He is, he is currently in jail writing a letter, and he's saying, listen, my circumstances, yes, I would like to be delivered, but I have to humble myself and recognize that God may be choosing to allow me to suffer for a greater purpose than me, for a greater thing than my experience. Maybe what I'm going through is a part of God's bigger plan for his glory, for his purposes. And if Jesus, the God of the universe, could humble himself for the benefit of others, how much more should we as his followers who are modeling our life after Jesus, because that's what being a Jesus follower truly means, is living as Jesus lived. If that is what we are doing and Jesus is willing to humble himself, how much more should we be willing to humble ourselves for the purposes of God. And yet it doesn't come natural to us. There's something inside of us even now that's like, well, but I don't want to suffer. I don't want to deal with this stuff. I, what, my opinion does matter. What I want matters. I want to make myself happy. There's part of us that's throwing a little tantrum right now inside of us because we don't want to surrender self to God. But Paul is telling us, Jesus did it. That's the same call that's on our life. Verse 9, he says, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus' humility led to him being glorified in the kingdom of God and in the same way in our life. If you want to store up treasures on earth, I'm sorry, if you want to store up treasures in heaven, it's by giving up self here on earth. Everything within the kingdom of God is in the direct opposition to the kingdom of this world. The world tells you, stand up for yourself. Do stuff for you. Make sure you meet your own needs. Make sure that you are making yourself happy. And the scripture tells us that God's values are exactly the opposite. This should not come as a surprise to us. Because everything in the scripture, God repeatedly says, the, the least of these on earth our kings and queens in heaven. He says, suffer the children to come unto me for of such is the kingdom of heaven. The, the entire value system is on its head. And yet we as followers of Jesus so many times allow the values of this world to penetrate our hearts. And instead of humbling ourselves, we elevate ourselves. 
allowing self to break down unity in the church because we think more highly of ourselves than we ought. Jesus was elevated because of his humility, not not in spite of it, because he was willing to humble himself even to the point of the cross. God glorified him, and now he will be recognized as the name that is above every name, and he's worthy of honor. Verse 12. Whenever you see a therefore in Scripture, you have to look to see what it's there for. So because of all of that Paul just said, because of the reality that Jesus humbled himself, because of the reality that we have been given all of these gifts, because God has glorified Jesus because of his humility, Paul says this, therefore, because of all that, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Let's stop there for a second. That verse, again, for a lot of people, has been a little bit confusing. Work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. Uh, I don't believe that this verse is telling you to, to develop insecurity in your faith. That's not what it's saying. It's not saying go through the process of continually doubting your salvation. But what it is saying, to my understanding, is that the reality of our salvation and what we have been saved from and how that should affect how we live our life moving forward is something that we should be in awe of. The reality that God would choose to use me, a sinful man who has all these sins and struggles, And then I look forward and how I'm called to live my life should bring a sense of awe and fear and trembling, not in a fearful way, but in an awesome way of of recognizing the amazing work of God in our life. And the reality is, is that that salvation, which is supposed to be eternal and life-changing, should affect how we live, should affect our experiences, should affect the decisions that we make, should affect the reality of us being Humble. A question was posed to me this week about whether or not we can be a follower of Jesus without being a disciple of Jesus. I'm afraid there's been a lot of people who may have prayed a prayer at some point in their life who believe that they are a follower of Jesus because they said a few words in some kind of religious repetition. And the reality of that is that if Jesus is the Lord of your life, he's going to change your life. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying you're not going to struggle with sin. You are. Every day for the rest of your human life, you're going to struggle with sin. You're not going to have 100% victory over all sin your entire life. But when God moves in to your heart, stuff changes. Your life changes. Who you are changes. He makes you a brand new person in him. So therefore, there's got to be a change. Are you working out that salvation in fear and trembling? It's not about being afraid of God, but it's about the reality that if there is no fruit in my life, none, if I have no desire to seek after the Lord, none. If there is no conviction of sin, none. That I, even if I prayed a prayer or did some kind of church experience, whether I was baptized or took communion or was confirmed, whatever it may have been, if there is no change in my life, then the reality is that I probably do not know Jesus as my Savior. 
And there's a lot of people who are placing a, their faith in a prayer that they whispered once when they were six years old who have never, once again, ever surrendered themselves to the Lord, have, have never sought after seeking the Lord, who are putting their faith in something that may not be real. Now, don't get me wrong. I am not here to judge whether or not you're a Christian or not. Not my job. But I do believe that you know and the Lord knows. So if there has been no change, no desire in your life to live according to God's will, if there is no desire to seek after him, if there is no desire to be humble as the word of God teaches, we need to examine our hearts. And if you are a follower of Jesus, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. In other words, take the teaching of God's word and the power of the Holy Spirit and allow it to change how you live. Allow the Holy Spirit to work in you. Verse 13, for it is God who works in you, <laughs> praise the Lord, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And the results of being humble and allowing him to work, starting in verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Listen, church, um, we're not good at that. I'm not good at that. I don't know if you're good at it. Um, and, and, and it's another one of those statements. It's, notice what it says. It says, do all things without grumbling and disputing. Now, am I saying that we should not have conversations about disagreements? No, absolutely. We should have conversations about the things we can disagree with, but the attitude in which we do it matters. Do all things without grumbling and being divisive, being a disputer, being disputings. Again, voice the opinion, share it, but the reality is if we can express those differentiations and opinion while still maintaining love, then we are representing the kingdom well. Not uniformity of opinion, remember we just talked about that, but uniformity of cause, the cause of Christ. Do nothing out of grumbling or disputing, Verse 15, why? That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. When we are, (laughs) when we cause division, when we are having disputings, all these types of things, when we are not humble, when we are arrogant and and, and self-focused and self-righteous, when we are all of these things, Our testimony is hurt because we are responding to the circumstances of this world just as the world responds to the circumstances of this world. And Paul is saying how we respond to these circumstances is our testimony. How do I know that? Well, read with me. I'm going to go back to the verse, verse 15, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. In the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, don't be crooked and twisted. Be different. Among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offerings of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice 
with me. He's saying, these circumstances may not change, but how you respond matters. And how you respond is going to allow you to shine like lights in the darkness. When your life is, is living right next to somebody's life who is living according to the values of this world, who is being grumpy, who is disputing, who is being argumentative, who is being arrogant, who is all of these sinful things that we just passed. When your life is stacked up right next to them, you don't have to say anything. You don't have to be mean to them. All you have to do is live a life different, and then your testimony shines like a star in the heaven. And that's what we're called to. We are called to live differently. And if we do that, Paul says, listen, my circumstances may not change, But as I'm facing this life, even if I am poured out like a drink offering, what are you saying is even if I die, even if I die knowing that I am dying for the cause of Christ, I will know that my life has not been wasted because I'm doing it for a purpose, for a reason bigger than me, for the kingdom of God. And he's saying, listen, if I die and I hear that you are doing the same thing, when I see my brothers and sisters around me shining like stars in the heaven because of their testimony, it makes my suffering even a little bit better to know in my mind that there are others around me who are standing for the same truth, who are choosing to humble themselves and view their life through the lens of the kingdom of God and God's purposes. Jesus set the example. Jesus humbled himself even to death. Paul is saying, listen, we are called to the same thing. We are called to, if you read anywhere in Paul's writings, you hear over and over again, I am crucified with Christ, therefore it's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Over and over again, he is saying, I die to myself. I, I, I die to self and I live to Christ. And I pray today that you will recognize I recognize the need to die to myself, to humble myself, and to remember that I am here for the purpose of glorifying God and spreading his word throughout this world that is desperately needing it. And as we humble ourselves, our life, compared to the world around us, will shine like stars in the heavens. So I ask you this question. Have you humbled yourself? Have you looked at your life and your purpose through the lens of God's kingdom? Number two, do you, do you consider how you suffer when people around you dealing with struggle? Do you recognize that the God of the universe could be using whatever you're suffering with, whatever your struggle is, he can use it for his purposes and his kingdom to build something bigger than just us as individuals? And do we recognize that how we suffer can be an encouragement to others in the midst of their circumstances. Jesus had a humble birth that led to the cross, and he's calling us to be humble as well. Let's pray. Father, you are good. We are so forever grateful that you were willing to humble yourself. We are so forever grateful that you have chosen, Lord Jesus, to humble yourself even to the cross. 
Now I pray that in a world that is constantly telling us to focus on ourselves, to love ourselves, to do all these things for ourselves, that we would recognize that we are not here for ourselves. We are here for you to accomplish your purposes in our lives. And there is nothing more satisfying to ourselves, honestly, than living for you. I pray that we would surrender, that we would humble ourselves and choose to view every experience that we have in this life through the lens of your kingdom and what you're doing. Thank you for coming in that human form and choosing to suffer for our benefit. Lord Jesus, you are good. In Jesus' name, amen.